I'd like you to do something for me this morning. I would like to invite you to take Jesus seriously. And this is what I mean by that. Somewhere along the line, you might have been exposed to the famous trilemma popularized by C.S. Lewis, which I mentioned a number of weeks ago. C.S. Lewis said that given the types of things that Jesus said and did, he could not be a mere prophet or a great teacher. There's only three options available to us. Either he was a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord he claimed to be. In other words, if he said that he was divine, even though he knew that he wasn't, well, then he was an evil con man, and he belongs behind bars. If, on the other hand, he claims that he was divine when he wasn't, well, then he is a crazy megalomaniac, and he belongs in an insane asylum. But the one thing that he cannot be is a mere prophet or a great teacher, because if you were a great teacher, he wouldn't claim to be divine when he's not. So that's the argument. Either he is a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. But I've met a number of people over the years who find that argument unconvincing. And they say, well, maybe this is all the result of a big mistake. I don't know what the answer is. I don't have an alternative explanation. But maybe people simply misunderstood Jesus. Or maybe Jesus misunderstood himself. Or the whole idea that Jesus was divine was perhaps made up. Now, that is the view taken by a critical scholar named Bart Ehrman, who teaches in religious studies at the University of North Carolina. And he used to find that trilemma convincing. But then, as he aged in life, he came to see that he couldn't buy it anymore. And he argues that the whole idea that Jesus is divine is a later invention. People didn't begin worshiping Jesus until long after he was dead, and he believes that the idea of Jesus' divinity came from the Gospel of John. But you don't find any claims to Jesus' divinity in the earliest sources that we have about Jesus, the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So if Jesus really was claiming to be God in Jerusalem and Galilee, he says, don't you think that all four Gospels would assert that fact? Is it really likely that they would forget to mention that part? And so he argues that Jesus' divinity is the result of John's theology, not Jesus' own teaching. But I would respectfully like to push back on that idea today. Now, it is, of course, true that you won't find the sentence, I am God, in the Gospels. It's true, Jesus never said those three little words. But I would argue that the reason why Jesus didn't say those three little words, I am God, is because he didn't have to, because he claimed so much more. And so what I'd like us to do during our time today is listen attentively to what Jesus actually says about himself, to take Jesus seriously. And if we do, we will find that perhaps the claims that he makes about himself, which are perhaps more indirect, are all the more persuasive in comparison to simply coming out and saying, I am God. The statements that Jesus makes in passing, off the cuff, in a casual sort of way, or in the midst of a larger conversation, are even more persuasive than if he had simply said, I am God. So what I'd like to do is take a closer look at three kinds of claims that Jesus made about himself and why they matter. 
And I'm going to take up Bart Ehrman's challenge. He says that the idea of Jesus' divinity only is present in the Gospel of John and nowhere in the earlier Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, I accept the challenge. I will limit my words today to only what Matthew, Mark, and Luke say. I won't even touch the Gospel of John. And yet, I would suggest that Jesus still makes astounding claims to his divinity. So let's look at what Jesus claims about himself regarding three areas. Forgiveness, judgment, and sonship. Forgiveness, judgment, and sonship. So if you'd like, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Luke chapter 10. You'll find the scripture passage beginning on page 868 in the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading Luke 10 verses 21 through 24. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Father is, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Last week, our kids were watching the 1987 film, The Princess Bride. Any Princess Bride fans out there? It's a little bit of a cult classic. It's a spoof on fairy tales, although it also contains some deep philosophical points as well. But there's a rather humorous scene after Princess Buttercup is forced to marry the evil Prince Humperdinck against her will. And after the apparent marriage ceremony, she is being escorted by Humperdinck's father, the king, down through the hallways to the honeymoon suite. And as they're making their way down the hallway, Princess Buttercup stops, and she gives a little kiss on the king's forehead, which gets him very, very excited. And he says, well, what was that for? And she replies, because you've always been so kind to me, and because I'm going to kill myself by the time I get to the honeymoon suite. And at this, he simply pats her hand and says, won't that be nice? And then he yells out to his wife, the queen, who's walking a few steps ahead of them and says, she kissed me, she kissed me. So he's completely oblivious to what she just said. He's not listening. And of course, that's the reason why it's funny. He's not paying any attention to what she's actually said. And I would suggest that when it comes to the Gospels, this is often what happens. We read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we see the things that Jesus says about himself, and we might respond by saying, Oh, isn't that nice? We fail to take Jesus seriously because we're not listening. We're not listening to what he's actually saying about himself. So let's consider three of these claims. The first one is forgiveness. Jesus claims to be able to forgive sins, meaning all sins. In Mark chapter 2, we read that Jesus is at home in Capernaum. Now, it may be that Jesus took up residence in Capernaum as an adult, so he's at his own home. And there's a group of people who want to bring their friend to Jesus because he has been 
paralyzed. And they carry him on a stretcher for who knows how long in order to present him to Jesus. But when they arrive at the house, such a massive crowd has gathered that the house is full and the crowd is spilling out into the street and they can't get through. They can't get to Jesus. But they are not easily deterred. They think to themselves, well, there's still the roof. So they carry their paralyzed friend up on the roof and then they begin pulling the roof off of the house. And likely this is Jesus' house. So they're so committed to getting their friend to Jesus that they don't care if they engage in property damage, right? Who's going to pay for this? But then they lower their friend down by all four corners of his bed, plop him down in front of Jesus. And the first thing that Jesus says when he sees this man is, son, your sins are forgiven. Now imagine if someone was so desperate to to get into the building that they actually ripped the roof off of our sanctuary and lowered a friend down in the midst of us. We would think, well, that's a dramatic entrance. Why do they want to be here? Well, why did those friends bring this man to Jesus? Why did they go to so much trouble? Well, it's obvious. They wanted their friend to be healed. They weren't looking for forgiveness. They were looking for healing. And yet Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, there were religious authorities present at the time, and they start questioning among themselves, well, who does this guy think he is? They assume that Jesus is now guilty of blasphemy because Jesus is assuming for himself a divine prerogative, the right to forgive sins. So they question among themselves, well, who can forgive sins except God alone? And that's exactly right. Who can? In the Old Testament, the prophets promised that one day God would establish a new covenant and then God would forgive the iniquity of his people and remember their sins no more. But this is something that God would do and only God could do. But now Jesus is claiming to have the authority to forgive sins. Now he knows what people are thinking and so he says, well, which one is easier? Which is easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven Or to say, rise, get up, and walk? That's a good question, right? Which one is easier? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because who would know if they actually are? The forgiveness of sins is not something that you can see with your eyes. So it might seem as if it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, but Jesus proceeds to say, but so that you might know that I have the authority to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he immediately springs up and goes home in front of them all in order to prove that Jesus does have the authority to forgive sins. And side note, Jesus is revealing that the forgiveness of sins is actually much more important than the healing of the body. That is the priority. But you see, the forgiveness of sins is a concept that might be familiar to some of us, so much so that we miss the significance of what Jesus is actually saying. Think about it like this. If you punch me in the nose and I say, I forgive you, that makes sense. But let's say you punch Chris in the nose and then I say, I forgive you. (laughs) Chris might have something to say about that. And that was the point that C.S. Lewis tried to draw out in his classic book, Mere Christianity. He says, one part of the claim tends to slip past us unnoticed because we have heard it so often that we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. 
We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toes, and I forgive you. You steal my money, and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man, himself unrobbed and untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Asinine fatuity is the kindest description we could give of his conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven, and he never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and a conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. So first, Jesus claims to be able to forgive sins, but that's not the only outrageous claim he makes. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, if you retain control over your life, it will lead to your ruin. But if you give yourself away in service to me, you will find the kind of life that you were made for. And then he goes on to say that at the end of time, absolutely everyone who has ever lived will appear before him for a final reckoning. And he says in verse 27, the Son of Man is going to come with the angels and the glory of his Father and repay each one according to what he or she has done. And there's a parallel passage to Matthew 16 in Mark chapter 8. And there Jesus says that when we stand before him at that final reckoning, the outcome for every one of us will ultimately depend on the way in which we respond to Jesus now. Jesus says that if you are ashamed of me and of my words, if when you hear me call, you turn away, then I will look away from you on that day for all to see. He goes on then to say in the Sermon on the Mount, if anything is keeping you from me, whatever it is, get rid of it. Throw it away. If it's your eye, pluck it out. If it's your hand, cut it off. Whatever it is, it will be worth it because you can gain the whole world and yet if you don't have me, you will lose everything. But perhaps the most terrifying of all of his statements comes in Matthew 25 where Jesus says that not only will he sit on his glorious throne and execute this final reckoning, but he says that he will separate people like a shepherd going through a flock, separating the sheep from the goats. And he says that he will hold us responsible not only for the wrong things that we have done, but also for the right things that we failed to do. Now that is a terrifying prospect that he will hold us responsible, not only for the things that we've done, but for the things that we failed to do, the things that we didn't even think of doing because it never even crossed our mind that we should. Now, stop and think about what Jesus is claiming in all of these statements. If I were to stand before you and say, look, at the end of time, everyone who has ever lived is going to appear before me. And not only am I going to judge the intentions of every single human heart, but your eternal destiny depends upon how you respond to me. 
What would you think? I mean, who says this kind of a thing? And yet Jesus says it repeatedly. John Stott once wrote that the most striking feature of Jesus' teaching is that he was constantly talking about himself. And that's especially jarring coming from someone who was constantly insisting on humility in others. Jesus chastises his disciples when they're trying to one-up one another and when they're acting in self-seeking ways. And he lifts up a child as a model for faith. And yet, when you turn to passages like Matthew 11, for example, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I, 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 me, me, me. Jesus is constantly talking about himself, and it is that focus on self which we find so disturbing in his teaching. He presented himself as the object of our faith, of our love, and our obedience. He says, believe me, love me, follow me. Now look, I'm a, I'm a religious teacher, but I'm not, I'm not presenting myself to you as the object of your faith or love or obedience. I mean, it'd be very nice if you choose to love me. I'd appreciate that. But that's not why I'm here. And that's the task of every religious leader. Every teacher, every prophet, every preacher points away from themselves to God. But Jesus points to God and to himself in one and the same breath. And that brings me to this third claim. You see, Jesus not only claims to have the authority to forgive sins or the authority to judge the earth, but he claims to be the utterly unique son of God. Now, it is true that in his teaching, Jesus had a lot to say about God the Father and about the kingdom of God, but he also claimed to be God's unique son. And he said that he had come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And in fact, he didn't hesitate to refer to it as my kingdom, not just the kingdom of God. And that entrance into that kingdom depended upon one's response to him. And it's also true that Jesus invites us to refer to God as Father. He even taught us to pray to God as our Father. But Jesus never referred to God as our Father. He personally only referred to him as my father. You see, his relationship to the father was unique. When he called himself the son of God, he dared to use the definite article. He claimed to be the son in an absolute and unqualified sense. His relationship with the father was unique. And that becomes especially clear in the passage that we read moments ago from Luke chapter 10. Jesus begins by saying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, what is he saying? Here, Jesus is suggesting that something was hidden. Something was hidden from the wise and the understanding. What was it? 
What was hidden from the wise and the understanding and yet revealed to little children? What was hidden? What couldn't they see? Well, what, what they couldn't see was Jesus' true identity, who he really is. And then he goes on to say, and this is easy to miss, but he goes on to say what is perhaps the most astonishing claim of all. He says, all things have been given to me, handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now let's take that second statement first. He makes two statements here, but let's look at the second one first. He says, no one knows who the Father is except the Son. Now do you realize what he's saying here? The New Testament commentator, F.F. Bruce, and really, in fact, all the great New Testament commentators, Dale Bruner, F.F. Bruce, they would all say that in context, in the immediate context, when Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father, what are the all things? He's not talking about power. He's not talking about authority. When he says, all things have been handed over to me, he's talking about knowledge. In the context of the conversation, he's saying, all things have been handed over to me by the Father in terms of unique personal knowledge of the Father. So when he says that no one knows the Father except the Son, and he knows all things, he's saying, I know absolutely everything there is to know about God. I know absolutely everything there is to know about God. Now, no one in history, within Christianity or outside of it, ever said anything remotely like that. Jesus has the audacity to say that, that he is unequaled, unparalleled. He has no rivals when it comes to the knowledge of God. I know absolutely everything there is to know about God, and the only way that you can know anything about God is through me. No one knows the Father except the Son, and the ones to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, of course it's true, right? Of course it's true that everyone can know that there is a God. Romans 1 tells us that God has revealed enough of himself in the physical world for us to know that there is God. But we couldn't know anything about who that God is or what that God is like unless he reveals himself to us. And Jesus is saying that is what he and he alone can do. But I don't need to tell you that this is what people don't like especially in New York City. This is what people don't like. They say, Jesus, what are you talking about? This sounds so arrogant. How can you say that you know absolutely everything there is to know about God and that we can only know God through you? That's an affront. There's billions of people on the planet who have had their own experience and perspective on God. They all have a different take. And you see, these kinds of statements are not only the source of religious conflict, but they're hopelessly narrow-minded. How could Jesus marginalize billions of people by saying that he alone knows who God really is and that we can only know him through Jesus? How could he claim that he's got this unique, exclusive perspective on the Father? Well, how would you respond to that? Well, the first thing I would say is it's important to see that Jesus is definitely not saying that Christians know absolutely everything there is to know about God. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that we have this unique access or this unparalleled perspective on God. He's saying that he does. If he was saying that Christians know absolutely everything there is to know about God, that would be arrogant, and it would be arrogant, perhaps, even of Jesus to make a claim like this. 
if he doesn't go on to say the second thing. Because not only does he say, no one knows the Father except the Son, but no one knows the Son except the Father. Now that's the part that you probably would have skimmed over in the past and never really would have stopped to think about what it means. What is Jesus saying? No one knows the Son except the Father. You see, Jesus is saying, not only is the only person who could plumb the infinite depths of God's being the Son, but the only one who can plumb the infinite depths of my being is the Father. So you see, he's putting himself on equal footing with God himself. He's saying that, that he and the Father are of the exact same nature. They're completely equal. He, he's saying that he's on the same level in the same category as the eternal, uncreated one, God the Father. So you see, he, he is drawing a contrast between himself and human beings, and, and he's putting himself on the side of God. He's in a category all his own. And that is why he can make the claims that he does. You see, Jesus is not saying he's just one more prophet in a long line of prophets who claims to have the inside scoop on who God really is. If he was just one more prophet in a long line of prophets, then it would be arrogant for him to say that he knows absolutely everything there is to know about God. But he's not claiming to be one more prophet. He's claiming to be God himself on equal footing with the Father. Only he can plumb the depths of God's being and only the Father can plumb the depths of his infinite being. No other religious leader, no other teacher, no other prophet ever said anything remotely like this. Just go and look. I dare you. No one's ever said anything like this. Not Buddha, not Confucius, not Socrates, not Muhammad. Every other teacher would say, hmm, based on my experience, based on my wisdom, here's the truth as far as I can perceive it. Follow this path and you will find life. But Jesus doesn't say anything like that. He says, I am the truth. Follow me and I will give you life. I mean, imagine if you were to interview Buddha and if you asked him, Buddha, are you God? Buddha would probably respond by saying, oh, wow, you are still living in the world of illusion. You've got a long way to go before you reach enlightenment. Or if you ask Socrates, hey, Socrates, are you Zeus? Are you Zeus in the flesh? And he'd laugh at you. Or if you ask Muhammad, Muhammad, are you the great God, Allah? He would probably tear his clothes because you've just spoken blasphemy as far as he's concerned. There's only one God and he is just a messenger. Only Jesus has the audacity to say that he is one with the Father and that he has unique access to God. And you see why this isn't arrogant. Jesus isn't being narrow. He's not being narrow-minded. He's in a category all of his own. Is it narrow-minded if Michael Jordan says he's the best basketball player who's ever lived? Is Tom Brady being narrow-minded if he says he's the greatest football player who's ever lived? I mean, we can debate whether that's true or not, but he's not being narrow-minded. And in a similar way, Jesus is telling us who he is. He is the unique son of God, and only he knows the Father as he does because only Jesus is like the Father as he is. So there you have it, three extraordinary claims and they all come to us from the earliest Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We haven't even touched the Gospel of John. 
Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins. He claimed that he would judge the world, and he claimed to be the one and only son of the Father. But still, you might say, well, so what? Who cares? Why does it matter that Jesus made these claims? You know, some people are offended by Jesus. And I've met a lot of people as a minister who, as soon as they find out that I'm a Presbyterian minister, and that's all they know about me, they refuse to talk to me anymore. And they, they might literally walk on the other side of the street. This happens to me. I don't know if this happens to you. Probably not. But if I'm walking down the street, sometimes I will see people. And as soon as they spot me coming, they will cross to the other side of the street. Because of who I am, what I represent, Jesus is offensive to them. But there's an awful lot of people, increasingly I would say, who just don't care. They just don't care. They don't care what kind of claims Jesus made about himself. Maybe he thought he was God. Maybe he didn't. Either way, it doesn't matter. And they would say, well, if believing in Jesus helps you, that's great. I don't care. I've got to find my own truth. I've got to carve out my own path. And I get that. I understand that. And of course, you're entitled to your opinion. But let me respectfully say that it actually does matter quite a bit what Jesus claims about himself. Because no one ever said the kinds of things that Jesus said and got away with it. There's been lots of people who have been delusional about who they are, but they don't attract a following. Massive crowds follow Jesus in his lifetime, and down through the centuries, billions of people continue to give their life to him. And even those who don't necessarily see Jesus as Lord and Savior regard his teaching as the best in the world. They would say that Jesus was a genius. Tolstoy, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, they would say that Jesus' teaching represents the very pinnacle of ethical teaching. Jesus understood better than anyone on the planet how to live life well. But here's the problem. If Jesus was such a genius, if his, if his teaching was the very best that the world has to offer, then how could Jesus possibly be so wrong about the main subject of his teaching, which was himself? How could he be right about absolutely everything else and so wrong about himself, the heart of it all? You see, it, does, it just doesn't make sense. And so if you say, well, I don't really care what Jesus said about himself, if you have a blasé attitude to his claims, then you know what you're like? You're like the king and the princess bride. If you get to the end of a sermon like this after hearing about Jesus' claims to forgive sins, to judge the world, to be the one and only son of the father, and you don't care, you're like the king who says, well, isn't that nice? You're not listening. So you see, you have to listen, and you do. You have to think. You have to make up your mind. One way or the other, you have to make up your mind. Now, do you see that? If not, it may be because something is hidden from your eyes. It may be because something is hidden from your eyes. Now, when Jesus said that his true identity was hidden from the sight of the wise and the understanding, but revealed to little children. What was he talking about? Was Jesus suggesting that the young can come to see Jesus for who he is, but not the old? Or was he suggesting that the illiterate can come to see him for who he really is and believe, but not the educated? Well, we know that can't be true. Because in Jesus' own lifetime and down through the centuries, people from all ages and all educational backgrounds have trusted and come to believe in Jesus 
and to see him for who he is. So what's the contrast he's drawing? Well, it's not between the the young and the old or between the illiterate and the educated. No, the contrast is between the humble and the proud. That's what it means to be wise and understanding on the one hand or like a little child on the other. And so you see, if you're not yet a Christian, if you cannot yet embrace the claims that Jesus makes about himself, it may be that the only thing that is standing in your way is your pride. And why might that be? Well, I would suggest that our pride resists Jesus' claims because his claims about himself make a claim on us. And therefore, when we investigate Jesus' claims, we cannot remain neutral. It's impossible for us. Think of the contrast here. If, if you wanted to read up on Julius Caesar, you could do that impartially. You could pick up his Gaelic wars and you could try to decipher for yourself, well, why did he fight the Gauls? Was he acting in self-defense or was he just trying to secure more political power for himself? You could read his record impartially as a neutral reader without bias or prejudice and make a decision. But when you read through the Bible and you try to make a a judgment about Jesus' claims, you're not impartial. You can't be neutral because if Jesus really is the forgiver of sins, the judge of all the earth, the one and only son of the Father, then his claims make a claim on you. You can't just live your life however way you want. You can't do whatever you want. And he can ask anything of you. And that's why we, re- why we resist him. Our pride gets in the way. And so if we actually want to see him for who he is, what do we have to do? We have to humble ourselves like a child. You see, when Jesus calls us to be a child, he's not telling us to be naive or gullible or ignorant. No, he's telling us to recognize who we really are compared to him. And the word that he uses is not even child, it's baby. He has revealed the truth to little babies because that was his gracious will. You see, compared to God's wisdom, we're just helpless babies. We don't know a thing. But if we give up our agenda, if we give up our, our ulterior motives, if like a baby we, we crawl into Jesus' lap and lay ourselves in his arms, if we trust him, oh, then he'll reveal all things to us. I'll close with this little story. On Saturdays, my kids take violin lessons at a music school on the west side, and sometimes I'll take them on Saturdays, and I'll sit in the hallway while they're in their lessons. And usually, on Saturday mornings, I take that time to continue to work on my sermon. So I'll have my laptop in front of me and all my notes and a whole stack of books. And apparently, one of the other parents, a dad, was in the hallway a few weeks ago and saw me working away on my sermon with all these notes and books around me. And he never said anything to me, but a few weeks later, he approached my middle daughter, Eliza, and he said, I'm really curious, what does your dad do? Is, is your dad a novelist? Is he a writer? And Eliza said, oh, no, he's, he's a pastor. And he said, oh, that makes sense. I thought... I thought he was working on a novel, but it makes sense that, that he's a pastor because I saw him, I saw him reading this book, Who Is This Jesus? And I bought it myself. 
Now, here's the thing. I don't know anything about this man. I still have never met him. But you know what that shows me? He took Jesus seriously. He just saw someone reading a book. Who is this Jesus? And realized, I can't ignore this. I should pay attention to it. Who is this man? What did he claim about himself? And here's the thing. If we're a little bit open, if we're just a little bit curious about the true identity of Jesus, Jesus promises that he will bless us beyond our wildest imaginations. Look at how he ends the passage here. He says, do you realize what a fortunate position you are in? He says, kings and prophets long to see his coming. And he tells his disciples that they would have died to be able to see what you can see and to hear what you can hear, but it's here now. God has come to you in the flesh. Don't take it for granted. Because if you embrace this truth of who he has revealed himself to be, then you will be blessed. Blessed are your eyes, blessed are your ears, blessed are the things that you can see and you can hear. And look, if you are a Christian, you might feel like, I don't know anything about God. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a baby. M my knowledge of God is, is just inches deep, but Jesus is saying, that doesn't matter. Because if you come to me, I'll take you into the deeps. I know absolutely everything about God. Give up your agenda. Give up your ulterior motives. Trust me. And I will take you places you never thought you could ever go. I will take you to the very depths of who God is. So let's take him seriously. Let me pray for us. Father, we acknowledge that so oftentimes we have a blasé attitude towards your claims, but we pray that you would humble us. Help us to become like little children so that we might see you for who you really are and to hear what you have to tell us. And if we do, Lord, then we know that you will forgive all of our sins, the things that we've done and the things that we've failed to do, the things that we didn't even think we should do. We can rest in the fact that when we stand before you, we know that you will accept us into the eternal kingdom that you have prepared for us, not because of what we have done, but simply because of what you have done for us through your work on the cross. And we thank you that you have promised that we can enjoy the kind of intimacy, the kind of communion that you have shared with your Father from before the beginning of time because we will be so united to you that everything you have, you will share with us. So Father, help us not to take these promises for granted. Help us to claim them for ourselves so that we might be blessed. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.